This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On July 13, 1985, President Ronald Reagan underwent surgery for colon cancer. Before he went under anesthesia, he prepared a letter to Congress passing his powers and duties on to the Vice President, George H.W. Bush, in the event that he didn't recover. If a crisis occurred while he was unconscious, or worse, if complications arose and he didn't wake up, the nation would be left rudderless in a state of constitutional crisis. It had happened before. In 1919, Woodrow Wilson suffered a massive stroke and the confused, bedridden president was completely hidden away for over six months while his wife signed paperwork for him. No one wanted to see the same disaster play out again. So for eight hours from 11.28 a.m. to 7.22 p.m., George Bush served as the acting president and prepared himself for the possibility that the role would become permanent. Luckily, Reagan pulled through. A little over three years later, Bush was elected to the presidency in his own right. Shortly after his inauguration, he called his cabinet together to address what would happen if he, like Reagan, had a serious health scare. The fate of the nation bearing down on his shoulders, he looked into the eyes of his chosen successor, Vice President Dan Quayle. Less than a year before, 42-year-old James Danforth Quayle had been a relatively unknown junior senator from Indiana. Just days after announcing Quayle as his running mate, Bush went home and wrote in his diary, I blew it. From day one, Quayle was widely ridiculed as inexperienced, incompetent, and awkward by Democrats and Republicans alike. Now that the election was won, Bush and the nation had to grapple with the consequences of that choice. If the president fell ill, would Quayle be up to the task? Or would one medical scare leave America's future hanging in the balance? The American public would have to face that question sooner than they thought. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game, with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. 
Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first and only episode on former President George H.W. Bush and his wife Barbara, who both came down with mysterious health issues during his first term in office. In early 1989, Barbara began rapidly losing weight and having problems with her eyesight. Two years later, George suffered sudden heart complications. Doctors suspected that the two very different sets of symptoms were actually caused by the same disease. January 20th, 1989 was an unusually warm winter's day in Washington, D.C. A record-breaking 300,000 people had gathered in front of the flag-draped Capitol to watch the swearing-in of the nation's 41st president. 64-year-old George Herbert Walker Bush walked on stage to roaring applause. For the past eight years, he'd been serving as vice president, and in just a few moments, he'd step up to become president himself. Despite his age, Bush was a picture of health and vitality. He played tennis, baseball, soccer, and was known to go jogging with reporters. As Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist administered the oath of office, George's 63-year-old wife Barbara stood beside him, wearing a deep blue coat that looked striking against her bright white hair. She held two Bibles under her husband's hand. One was the family's Bible, and one was the same book used by George Washington when he had been sworn in 200 years earlier. It was impossible to notice from the crowd, but up close, Barbara's eyes were puffy and watery. It wasn't the emotions of the day that brought her to tears. Her eyes had been acting up for the past week. She figured it was a makeup allergy. Once she got back to the White House and washed off her mascara, maybe it would all clear up. But the next morning, when Barbara woke up after her first night in the presidential suite, her eyes weren't doing any better. She thought she might just be tired. After all, she and George had woken up at the crack of dawn that morning, and by 8 a.m. they were greeting tour groups. The couple spent all morning hosting private tours for any visitors who happened to stop by the White House. As George told the crowd, this is the people's house, and it just seemed appropriate on this first day that we welcome as many as we can. In the afternoon and evening, the new president and first lady made the rounds, stopping by 13 different inaugural balls. They didn't get back until nearly 1 a.m. When Barbara went to bed, her eyes were even itchier and more swollen than they'd been in the morning. Once again, she figured it was from the long hours wearing eye makeup. That was all the thought she gave it. There were enough things to worry about already. In late February, 
The Bushes took a long trip to Japan and Korea to meet with state leaders. Maybe it was jet lag or something in the air, but Barbara's eyes were more irritated than ever throughout the entire trip. Shortly after they got back to the States in early March, Barbara held a luncheon at the White House on March 7th, outlining the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy. If they looked closely, the attendees might have noticed that Barbara's eyes were still red and puffy. Instead, they fixated on something else. She'd lost considerable weight since the inauguration. Barbara wasn't trying to lose weight, but she certainly wasn't going to complain. She hushed the whispers about her supposed diet, chalking it up to staying active in the long days of rushing around the capital without any time to stop for a snack. But over the next few weeks, her weight kept dropping, even as she tried to cut back on overwork. By mid-March, she'd lost 18 pounds in all, a considerable percentage of her body weight. And there was a more worrying problem. Her irritated eyes were steadily getting worse. They were no longer just itchy and watery. They were so swollen, they seemed to bulge out of her face. On top of that, she was experiencing double or even triple vision. The White House physician, Dr. Burton Lee, insisted she head to the hospital for some tests. After months of ignoring the problem, Barbara agreed. On March 20th, 1989, Barbara was driven to Walter Reed Hospital, where the doctors were easily able to link her seemingly unrelated symptoms. The most obvious starting point was the weight loss. While Barbara was correct that stress can often lead to unintentional weight loss, another common cause is hyperthyroidism. The thyroid gland, located in the front of the neck, releases hormones that control metabolism and heart rate. When the thyroid releases too much of those hormones, the heart beats irregularly, body temperature rises, and carbohydrate and fat stores are burned too quickly, causing rapid weight loss, changes in appetite, and other symptoms. There are several different conditions that can cause hyperthyroidism. Viruses that temporarily inflame the thyroid, benign tumors in or near the thyroid gland, and even tumors in the ovaries or testes, which can affect hormone levels. But Barbara's eye problems pointed towards the most common cause, Graves' disease. Named for the doctor who first described it in 1835, Robert James Graves, the disease is an autoimmune disorder, meaning it causes the body's immune system to malfunction. Normally, the immune system produces antibodies to fight off bacteria and viruses. In Graves' disease, the body inexplicably sends antibodies to attack the thyroid gland instead. According to Bruce D. Weintraub, a thyroid specialist at the National Institutes of Health, when the antibodies latch onto the thyroid cells, it fools the thyroid into thinking it's receiving a normal stimulation, signaling that more hormone is needed. So it releases more, flooding the bloodstream with an excessive amount of thyroid hormones and speeding up all of the body's processes. Researchers still aren't sure what causes these rogue antibodies to target the thyroid in Graves' disease. One theory 
is that a certain bacteria or retrovirus could trick the immune system into believing the thyroid gland was the source of the infection. There also seems to be a genetic component, as patients with Graves quite often have a family history of autoimmune disorders. According to the National Institutes of Health, it may be linked to the HLA gene complex, which helps the immune system distinguish between its own body's proteins and invading viruses. It's hard to say whether Barbara had these genetic variations, but her son Marvin had previously been diagnosed with regional enteritis, also an autoimmune disease. This pointed to a possible predisposition within the family. Certain factors seem to trigger the onset of Graves' disease in people who are genetically at risk, including infections, certain medications, and, as Barbara Bush correctly guessed, stress. A 1992 survey by the University of London found that, compared to the control group, patients with Graves' disease reported significantly more negative life events in the year leading up to the diagnosis. Becoming the First Lady of the United States is hardly a negative life event, but the workload and pressure that came along with the position might have triggered the onset of Graves in Barbara's case. That is, if Graves' disease was truly her diagnosis. Her symptoms certainly suggested it was. Weight loss alone isn't enough to definitively point to a thyroid problem, but Barbara was also displaying another telltale symptom of Graves, eye swelling. For reasons that aren't well understood, the antibodies created by the disease cause fat deposits to swell up in the eye muscles and connecting tissues. The increased pressure behind the eyes causes them to push outward, creating a bug-eyed appearance and often causing vision problems. This was what sealed the deal for Barbara Bush's doctors. All signs pointed to Graves' disease, they just had to run some tests to confirm it. A simple blood test can show whether the amount of thyroid hormones in the bloodstream is elevated. However, since many different conditions can cause hyperthyroidism, another test is needed to determine whether Graves is the root of the problem. And this one is a little more interesting. The thyroid uses iodine to produce its hormones. By measuring the amount of iodine taken up by the thyroid, doctors can determine whether Graves' disease is triggering the gland to work overtime or whether another problem is throwing the hormones out of whack. And how do you measure iodine uptake? By having the patient drink a small amount of radioactive iodine. A day or two afterward, a special imaging camera can be used to visualize how much of the iodine was absorbed by the thyroid. Not too long after arriving at Walter Reed Hospital, Barbara sipped a cup of the radioactive solution. Then she was on her way back to the White House. After months of stalling, she would finally have her prognosis in a matter of days. Her doctors were certainly hoping it was Graves, since despite its ominous name, the disease is completely treatable. But there was a chance her problem was something more threatening, like a thyroid tumor. The next few days passed slowly, but when Barbara finally came back for the imaging tests, the results were quickly confirmed. 
Her thyroid hormone levels were higher than usual. Her iodine uptake was high as well. It was Graves' disease. This was a relief. Her doctors reassured her that with proper treatment, she could be back to normal in no time. She wouldn't even need surgery or a hospital stay. Barbara began her treatment on March 24th, just four days after she went in for her first examination. As the first step, she was given a drug called methimazole, which blocks the thyroid from producing hormones. Within four days, her eye swelling went down and her vision was back to normal. But methimazole only temporarily affects the thyroid. Once you stop taking it, the Graves' symptoms will come back. Once Barbara's hormone levels were under control, it was time for a more permanent treatment. That is, swallowing a dose of radioactive iodine to completely destroy the thyroid. Extreme as it sounds, this is actually fairly safe. Iodine is mainly absorbed by the thyroid, so the radiation only affects that gland while leaving the rest of the body's cells intact. Once the thyroid has completely stopped functioning, a daily hormone pill is prescribed to administer the proper level of thyroid hormones. These pills will have to be taken every day for the rest of the patient's life. This essentially replaces one problem with another. But it's much easier to add more hormones than to take them away, so this is considered the simplest and most reliable treatment. Once the body's hormone levels are stable, a regular daily pill is all it takes to keep the condition under control. On April 12th, Barbara went back to Walter Reed Hospital and drank another cup of radioactive iodine. Her doctors would monitor her hormone levels through regular blood tests over the next two or three weeks. Once her thyroid had stopped functioning, she'd begin her hormone replacement pills. Everything was on its way back to normal. Since the condition was easily treatable, the Bushes chose to go public with the news right away. Barbara didn't intend to be a national spokeswoman for Graves' disease, but she knew that being open and upfront would stop the rumor mill from churning. As it turned out, she miscalculated. As soon as the news broke in late March of 1989, Barbara Bush's health struggle was front-page news in papers across the country. Thanks to the journalists and experts explaining the First Lady's condition, the relatively unknown Graves' disease entered the public consciousness. And as Barbara recovered, it proved that the disease, which, according to the National Institutes of Health, affects one in 200 people, was nothing to be afraid of. She stopped losing weight, her eyes went back to normal, and after a few months of close monitoring by doctors, her hormone levels were completely stable. One medical mystery had been solved quickly and painlessly, but it was still only a few months into George Bush's time in office. The first family's health woes were just beginning, and their next brush with disease would leave the fate of the nation in danger. Coming up, President Bush faces a health scare of his own. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After First Lady Barbara Bush's recovery from Graves' disease in the spring of 1989, life in the White House returned to normal, or as normal as it could be. The U.S. invaded Panama, the Berlin Wall fell, the Gulf War began and ended. Barbara's itchy eyes never came back. But another medical issue was on the horizon. On Saturday, May 4, 1991, President George H.W. Bush was taking a jog through the wooded mountain trails of Camp David. The 66-year-old was enjoying the exercise. He didn't see why growing old had to slow him down. It was a beautiful afternoon, and the fresh air and quiet trail was just what he needed. There was so much on his mind. NAFTA, the collapsing Soviet Union, the economic recession, He'd just recently withdrawn U.S. troops from the Persian Gulf, leaving Saddam Hussein in control of Iraq. He could only hope that was the right decision. Suddenly, a pain gripped George's chest. His heart was pounding. He could barely breathe. He slowed to a walk, shrugged off the Secret Service agents trailing behind him, and kept going. It was just a little shortness of breath, nothing too unusual. But even as he cooled down, he couldn't get his wind back. This wasn't a regular case of pushing himself too hard. Something felt seriously off. When he made it back, he stopped by the camp's infirmary, Eucalyptus Cabin. The physician on duty, Dr. Michael Nash, immediately set up an EKG to take a look at his heartbeat. It appeared the upper and lower chambers were pumping blood at different rates, causing an irregular heartbeat, known as atrial fibrillation. This is a symptom, not a diagnosis in and of itself. Atrial fibrillation can be a sign of a heart attack, but it can also be caused by more benign conditions, like high blood pressure, too much caffeine or physical stress, like jogging too hard. George Bush opted not to panic. But when his heartbeat hadn't gone back to normal after a while, Dr. Nash started to worry. Especially in someone George's age, fibrillation can be a sign of underlying heart disease. It took some help from the swarm of staffers and Secret Service agents who had gathered in the medical cabin. But eventually, Dr. Nash convinced the president to go to the hospital. A little over an hour after his symptoms began, Bush boarded a helicopter to Bethesda Naval Hospital around 5.40 p.m. He took his briefcase with him and worked throughout the 20-minute flight, ignoring the IV and heart monitor that had been strapped onto him. Barbara was right there with him, and she wasn't taking it quite so lightly. As she watched him work, a mess of tubes feeding into his veins, a thought ran through her head. Don't you dare die. I'll never forgive you. They landed at Bethesda at about 6 p.m., and the Bushes were led to the presidential suite, a palatial nine-room unit that takes up an entire floor of the hospital. 
For the next hour, George was poked and prodded by doctors. It was clear he wasn't having a heart attack. The initial tests ruled out the possibility of heart disease. That was good news. But if it wasn't a problem with his heart, what was it? The doctors pressed further. George said he'd been feeling unusually tired for the past two weeks. Of course, he'd spent the past two weeks dealing with accusations that his chief of staff was using taxpayer-funded Air Force planes as his own private jets. That would be a headache for anyone. There's not much evidence that stress and fatigue can directly cause atrial fibrillation on their own, but some underlying conditions can be exacerbated by stress. According to Bush's heart specialist, Dr. P. Jacob Varghese, we have to ask how we can remove precipitating factors, but it's hard to remove stress from being the president. Bush also reported that he'd lost nine pounds in the past two months. Not an alarming loss, but it did strike him as unusual, since he had a naturally slow metabolism and always had a hard time losing weight. This could easily be caused by the stress, but just to be sure, they took a blood sample to test for thyroid problems. By 7 p.m., a deluge of staffers had swarmed the hospital suite, preparing for the inevitable news conference. The press had already caught wind of the hospital visit, and George was starting to regret ever complaining about his heart in the first place. It was a lot of hubbub for what was probably a minor problem. When press secretary Marlon Fitzwater arrived, Bush called out to him, Marlon, see if you can't get me a two-week vacation out of this. George continued cracking jokes about the situation until the doctor came back. He had sobering news. Even when it's not caused by a dangerous underlying disorder, atrial fibrillation brings an increased risk of blood clots. If a clot travels to the brain and blocks a blood vessel, it can cause a stroke. In fact, according to the National Blood Clot Alliance, atrial fibrillation patients are five times more likely to have a stroke and twice as likely to die from it. The cause of Bush's fibrillation still hadn't been determined, but it was imperative that they get his heart beating normally as soon as possible. For that, they turned to two drugs, digoxin and procainamide. Digoxin inhibits the electrical signals sent between the heart's chambers, leading to a slower heartbeat. Procainamide blocks another set of signals to restore a regular rhythm to the heart. Taken together, the pills would hopefully keep Bush's heart beating normally, while doctors searched for the root of the issue. George and Barbara settled in for the night, sharing a simple hospital meal of steak and salad. They would monitor the president's condition overnight and reassess in the morning. Meanwhile, the press team returned to the White House to greet the flocks of anxious reporters. Press Secretary Fitzwater flashed a thumbs up to the crowd, signaling the president was okay. He reassured them that Bush was walking around and making jokes and he could be back jogging in a matter of days. That was optimistic. The next day, Bush's team of doctors were disappointed to see he wasn't responding to the medication. His heart was still fibrillating. If things didn't turn around by the next morning, 
they would have to turn to the backup plan, electrical cardioversion, that is, using an electrical shock to reset his heart and jolt it back into a normal rhythm. This is done by placing paddles on the chest, similar to the defibrillator used to restart patients' hearts in the emergency room. It's relatively safe and more than 90% effective, but if it turned out the fibrillation was being caused by a blood clot in the heart, dislodging that clot could cause it to travel up to the brain and result in a stroke. There was currently no sign that Bush had a blood clot, but even so, there was one other problem with the procedure. It required going under anesthesia. That returned Bush's advisors to the difficult issue of James Danforth Quayle. Bush had been clear from the beginning of his term that if anything were to incapacitate him, even temporary anesthesia, he would sign over power to his young, inexperienced vice president. But at the time, it had been a distant contingency plan. Now, it was an urgent reality. During his brief time in the spotlight, Quayle had become an international laughingstock for his frequent gaffes and incomprehensible soundbites. On one memorable occasion, he misstated that the Holocaust had occurred in America, then followed it up by explaining, quote, I didn't live in this century. Nevertheless, Quayle later assured the public that we are ready for any unforeseen event that may or may not occur. Unless there were major complications, Bush would only be in the operating room for a matter of hours. Surely even Dan Quayle couldn't run the country into the ground in that short of a time. But if anything went wrong, America might have to grapple with a Quayle presidency. Just two days earlier, a CNN poll had found that only 19% of respondents would vote for Quayle for president. As soon as the press got wind of Bush's possible shock treatment, the nation flew into a frenzy. Op-ed after op-ed questioned Quayle's thin record and bumbling persona. And the concerns weren't partisan. The New York Times reported that on Capitol Hill, Republican lawmakers were murmuring their fears quietly because, quote, if George Bush finds out we said anything, we'll never eat lunch in this town again. Luckily, by late afternoon, doctors noticed a slight change in Bush's EKG. His heartbeat was a little less out of sync. It looked like he was finally responding to the procainamide. They monitored him closely for the next few hours, waiting for more improvement. But it never came. They gave him another dose of procainamide and kept waiting. If there was no more improvement overnight, they'd have to go ahead with the shock treatment in the morning. Once he was settled in, Barbara went home for the night. She wanted to reassure the family and the world that it was nothing serious, and sticking by her husband's bedside 24-7 was not the way to send that message. But just as soon as she got back to the White House, there was a call from the hospital. George's heart was back to normal. According to Bush's chief physician, Dr. Burton Lee, at about 10.25 p.m., 
his heart suddenly converted to a normal sinus rhythm. Throughout the night, he kept receiving regular doses of procainamide, and his heart kept beating regularly. Then, as his full team of physicians were on their way to the hospital for a 5.30 a.m. meeting, the fibrillation returned. All that progress was suddenly lost. Once the doctors assembled, they spent a full hour talking over their options. Electrical shock treatment would almost definitely reset his heart, but it did come along with risks, both for Bush and for the American Republic. Since Bush didn't have any symptoms outside of his irregular heartbeat, it didn't seem urgent enough to take that risk. He had been responding to medication overnight, so the team unanimously decided to keep him on the two drugs he was taking and see what happened. They'd have the final blood test results back the next day, and maybe they'd be given a more conclusive answer. It was the morning of May 6th, a Monday, and Bush was anxious to get back to work. Luckily, the White House medical unit was well-equipped, and there was no reason why they couldn't roll a cardiac monitor into the Oval Office. With his doctor's blessing, he was taken home, hooked up to another EKG, and immediately back on the job. His first priority, once he returned to the White House, was to defend his much-abused second-in-command, Dan Quayle. At 9.30 a.m., he told reporters, he has my full support, always has, and he's doing a first-class job. He must have soothed his own fears as well, because within 15 minutes, his heartbeat once again went back to normal. And it stayed normal throughout his packed schedule of meetings. The former Soviet foreign minister, then the president of Cameroon, and then the envoy for a humanitarian trip to Ethiopia. Clearly, stress wasn't the trigger for the fibrillation. His heart remained normal all day and night and into the next morning. Then, on Tuesday the 7th, the blood test results came in. George Bush was suffering from a hyperactive thyroid. The most likely cause? Graves' disease. Coming up, we'll examine the mysterious reasons George and Barbara both could have developed the same autoimmune disease within the span of two years. Now, back to the story. Early in the morning of May 8, 1991, 66-year-old President George H.W. Bush took a helicopter back to Bethesda Naval Hospital for a final round of tests. After four days, his doctors had finally zeroed in on the cause of his atrial fibrillation. His thyroid was overactive. Since the thyroid controls all aspects of the body's metabolism, including the heart rate, too much thyroid hormone in the bloodstream can cause a rapid and irregular heartbeat. It would also explain Bush's sudden fatigue and weight loss. The cause of the hyperthyroidism still needed to be determined. So, when Bush arrived at the hospital, he was taken to the nuclear medicine lab for a dose of radioactive iodine. They would test his thyroid's iodine absorption, the same as they did with Barbara two years earlier. The next day, George's thyroid was scanned with an imaging machine, and, as expected, the iodine uptake was unusually high. 35% had been absorbed, compared to the normal 8 to 30%. 
there was no evidence of an enlarged thyroid or a tumor, which left one possible diagnosis, Graves' disease. Graves hadn't seemed to be the most likely contender, since women are seven to eight times more likely to develop the condition than men. In addition, George wasn't showing many of the common symptoms, like the eye irritation that had affected Barbara. But in patients over 60, the symptoms often appear differently. In many cases, only one organ is affected. In this case, the heart. From here, George's treatment would proceed much in the same way as his wife's. Right away, he was given a strong cup of radioactive iodine, which he sipped through a straw while telling reporters that he felt perfect. Over the next few weeks, while they waited for the iodine to destroy his thyroid, he'd keep taking the digoxin and procainamide to keep his heartbeat under control, along with an anticoagulant to prevent blood clots. After the radioactive iodine treatment was finished, he'd be given a daily pill to bring his thyroid hormones back to the proper level. The best news was that Bush could immediately go back to work as normal. Dr. Burton Lee advised the White House staff to give the man a break in case his intense schedule was putting his body under stress. Although he conceded that every time we try to give him a break, he tries to add things into his schedule. Another crisis averted for the Bush family and for America. But there was one lingering question. Why did George and Barbara both develop the same non-contagious disease in the span of two years? One of George's thyroid specialists at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Colm A. Gorman, told the New York Times, I am as surprised as you are. While one in 200 people will develop Graves' disease within their lifetime, the odds are extremely low that two spouses will develop it while they're married, especially within so short a time span. The only explanation anyone could give was freak coincidence. Thyroid specialist Gilbert H. Daniels, who consulted on George's case, mentioned that left-handed people like George are more likely to develop autoimmune disorders. So are people whose hair turns white prematurely, as Barbara's did. The reason for this connection still isn't totally understood, and correlation does not mean causation. But if both George and Barbara were already more at risk, it's a little less bizarre that they both developed autoimmune disease around the same time. Still, not everyone was willing to explain it away as coincidence. Although nothing has been proven, it's been suspected that Graves' disease is triggered by some sort of infection, like a bacteria or a retrovirus. George and Barbara's case was similar to a notable case in the 1970s, where three endocrinologists at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York all came down with hyperthyroidism in an eight-year period. Apart from this mini-epidemic, there were no other cases of hyperthyroidism in the hospital staff in the previous 20 years. Since all three patients were working in the same division and endocrinologists treat patients with thyroid problems, it was suspected that the three cases were caused by some infectious agent or environmental factor within the ward. However, no common cause was ever conclusively found. 
There was a third piece of the puzzle that had many people scratching their heads. The previous year, in 1990, the Bush's family dog, Millie, had been diagnosed with lupus, another autoimmune disease. Lupus is similar to Graves' disease, but instead of attacking the thyroid, the immune system turns against other organs and tissues, like the skin, kidneys, brain, heart, and lungs. What are the chances that not one, not two, but all three members of the household came down with the same kind of disease within a two-year period? While the exact cause of lupus is unknown, it's also thought to be triggered by some kind of infection. Notably, a 2004 study published in the academic journal Lupus found that dogs whose owners have lupus are significantly more likely to develop the disease themselves. The Bush family's case had experts wondering whether Graves' disease and lupus were in fact caused by the same trigger. The question was, what was it and where did it come from? The White House was carefully monitored to prevent contamination of any sort. Also, Barbara had developed her grave symptoms a few weeks before moving in. The source of the mysterious infection, if one existed, was probably somewhere else. Dan Quayle and his wife Marilyn pointed the finger at the ancient state of the plumbing and lead pipes in the Naval Observatory, the official residence for the vice president. George and Barbara had lived there for eight years while George was serving as Reagan's VP. Millie the dog had lived there for about two years after she joined the family in early 1987. On Quayle's tip, toxicologists tested the water at the Naval Observatory to see if it was contaminated with iodine or lithium, which are known to inflame the thyroid. Ingesting too much of these substances could cause symptoms similar to Graves' disease. But the water tests came back clean. They checked the plumbing and the paint throughout the residence for traces of contamination, but still nothing. With all the obvious sources of contamination ruled out, the rumor mill turned their attention down the street. The Naval Observatory is less than a mile away from the Soviet Embassy. Could advanced Soviet weaponry be behind this? When Bush was serving as vice president in the 80s, relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union were tense. Theoretically, an airborne bacteria or virus could be released from the embassy, infect the Bush family at the Naval Observatory, and trigger their autoimmune problems. However, this is wildly unlikely. It would be impractical to spread an airborne pathogen over the entire neighborhood, blindly hoping it reaches their target nearly a mile away. Beyond that, if the Soviets truly wanted to kill the vice president, they might have gone for a disease that's actually fatal instead of something easily treated like Graves' disease. The Soviet rumors were quickly and fairly dismissed as a conspiracy theory. But that still left experts baffled as to what did cause the trio of autoimmune diseases. After a brief investigation, they essentially shrugged and decided to let it go without a final answer. George was already recovering, and he was ready to move on from all the hubbub. In this case, political concerns trumped scientific ones. 
The 1992 election was already on the radar, and Bush's campaign advisors agreed there was no good in drawing attention to his health issues. As Chief of Staff John Sununu said, they didn't want people to think they were going to elect a damaged president. But Graves' disease affected Bush's re-election campaign in more ways than one. Over the next year, while his hormones were leveling out, he was constantly fatigued, both mentally and physically. According to his campaign chairman, Fred Malik, he had the energy to get up in the morning and handle his inbox, but he didn't have the mental energy to initiate, to cause change. Even with measured doses of hormone pills, it can be difficult to strike the right balance. Occasionally, Bush's atrial fibrillation returned, signaling that his thyroid hormone levels were too high. When the dosage was reduced, he was left feeling tired and lethargic, a sign they'd gone too far in the opposite direction. Bush's hormones eventually found their balance and he was back to his active self. Unfortunately, by then, his shot at re-election had already been lost. On election night of 1992, George Bush was unseated by Bill Clinton. He was the first incumbent president to lose re-election in 60 years. Although the 68-year-old George never held elected office again, he and Barbara stayed active in the political scene for the rest of their lives. After a long struggle with various health issues unrelated to Graves' disease, Barbara died in April 2018 at the age of 92. George followed seven months later at age 94. At the time of his death, he was the longest living president in U.S. history. These two high-profile cases brought Graves' disease into the spotlight, but much about the conditions still remains a mystery. Although research continues, there's currently no definitive answer for what causes the disease. As for the Bush family, it's impossible to say whether George, Barbara, and Millie's autoimmune diseases really were a coincidence, or if some yet-to-be-identified retrovirus or bacteria was responsible. As science advances, there's hope that the mystery might one day be solved. But for now, doctors and patients are grateful that even if we don't know what causes Graves' disease, we at least know how to treat it. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, 
Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.